Thanks to Audible for supporting this episode of Market Foolery. For a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial, go to audible.com fool. It's Thursday, February 9th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Matt Greer. And joining me in studio, we've got Matt Argersinger and Jason Moser from Million Dollar Portfolio. Guys, welcome. Hey, hey now. Doing, Mac? Guys, lots of big earnings, so let's get right to it. And let's begin with Twitter. Shares of Twitter down big on Thursday after the company reported its slowest quarterly growth since going public in 2013. Jason, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> no, it doesn't. I feel like the Twitter investor relation Twitter feed should just switch its avatar back to the Twitter egg because they are masters at just laying <laughs> eggs, earnings season in and earnings season out. Man, I mean, they just they never ever really seem to quite pull that one off. Um, I, I think there. I mean, there is some good. There is some bad in here. I think we've been a bit critical of Twitter in in million dollar portfolio for a number of reasons, and I think all of that is is plain plain to see. And and we've held them to some sort of goals that we're looking to, to see them achieve over the long run. Growing users is part of that, really. But I think translating that into revenue growth, engagement, uh, things like bringing down stock-based compensation, really running this like a business as opposed to some Silicon Valley uh, incubator. And I think they're taking small steps to get in that direction. It's just something that is going to take a while. And and I've, I've been asked my opinion on this for a number of quarters now, and I think we've reached the point where Twitter, as an investment, I mean, it's obviously been a dud. From today's price, I think the market is more or less called sort of a floor on where they see the real value in this company until they can, you know, prove otherwise. Um, so it's it's probably a coin flip with a lot more upside than downside at this point. I try to look at this with some optimism, and I think it's it's hard for me to look at this and say, oh, you just need to cut bait with the with the stock and move on, uh, because there are some glimmers of hope there. So, what's the problem with the business of Twitter, though? Because a lot of us, if we're not following this company, we're hearing a lot yeah. about Twitter, about tweets, about things in the news. So, when we look at the business, what is not happening? So, here's the disconnect, I think. And Jack Dorsey said it very well. He said, quote, the whole world is watching Twitter. While we may not be currently meeting everyone's growth expectations, there is one thing that continues to grow and outpace our peers, Twitter's influence and impact. And I agree with that. I think that while you have a smaller user base than something like perhaps Facebook, the core purpose that Twitter serves as really this real-time platform of just information in regard to whatever, sports, news, finance, everything, Twitter is truly the platform for that. And they continue to shine that way. I think a lot of what they're doing now is a real testament to how poorly this business was run leading into the IPO and shortly after the IPO. I think management did not do a good job of running this as a business. And I think just now they're finally coming to the to the realization that they can actually be both. They can they can serve their purpose and they can also be a good and profitable business. And and again, the target of hitting gap profitability in 2017 I think is an important one because if they do hit that then at least there's some light at the end of the tunnel, and this can be at least a business that can return some value to shareholders over time, assuming they don't get bought out first. You know, if David Gardner, when I back in when I was on Rule Breakers, he used to say, "If this company disappeared tomorrow, would people miss it?" And we were talking about it earlier this week in, yeah. in our MDP meeting, and and with Twitter, the answer is absolutely yes, and that is what is so confounding, because if Twitter did disappear tomorrow. It would there would be a huge vacuum that someone something would come rush in to replace because yeah. the platform and the medium is so influential and so important. The question is why aren't advertisers? I guess at this point 
finding it as influential and relevant as users and the media and everyone else, all these categories that we talk about, sports, entertainment, politics. And uh, it's just it's just a question of whether that they can break into that. I, I believe it will, um, and I think Jack and, and the team are, are kind of pivoting in the right direction. Uh, it's just one of those things where um, it's it's an it's it's a dilemma for investors. You have this hugely influential, popular platform that is yet to really show that it can be a profit-making enterprise. I think it gets there. It's just going to take a long time. So, three years from now, Twitter standalone company or has it been acquired? I would prefer to see it as a standalone company. I think whenever you have something like this with a lot of potential, like it does, to me, like if you're the founder or co-founder and CEO of a business like this, I mean, you got to feel like the sky's the limit, and you just want to do so much with it. So, I hope it is on its own. And I think honestly that given given the thinking that we've seen from Jack Dorsey. It strikes me as a business he wants to continue to run. I'd prefer to see him honestly just take over one role uh, or the other. Just just focus on Twitter or Square, not both. And honestly, I think Twitter really needs him. Um, it's you know anyone's guess. I'd I'd like to see it as a standalone company, but you know again, I think that for shareholders, I mean, I think if you own shares today and I do and we do in million dollar portfolio, I don't think there's any real downside in hanging on to them. I mean, I think it's sort of a ticket for opportunity. I mean, it's. You know, shortcomings notwithstanding, I mean, there is still a future there in some capacity. Um, I, I don't know that I would be recommending someone go out and just buy these shares today because I do view it more or less as a coin flip at this point. But I think the market is telling us something today in regard to how it values this company. Um, and and you know, it wasn't the greatest quarter in the world. Let's be clear. So I mean, the fact that the stock is really kind of just selling off as it is today, I, it, it could be argued it should have been probably more. <laughs> yeah, 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 I agree. I, I think I think you if, if you believe in Twitter like we do, and you know, I, I think you buy a small position because you believe in the mission and the purpose and the influence that it has, and and you just let it you let it ride. And, yeah. and maybe it's a ticket that gets you somewhere really nice at some point. But right now, it's it's a very murky picture. And a very good example of why we tell people: listen, this is why diversity matters. This is why it matters to not back up the truck on just one stock and have 50% of your portfolio in one holding, right? If this is a 3% position for you or a 2% position for you, you can sleep well at night knowing that, hey, you've got this sort of ticket, this ownership of a business that has some pretty phenomenal opportunity. And if it works out, great. If it doesn't work out, well, this isn't this isn't a POS that's going to zero, right? Right. And not a great quarter for Whole Foods, the company reporting lower than expected revenues and a sixth consecutive decline in same store sales. Guys, the company also lowered guidance for the full year. Whole Foods co founder and CEO John Mackey is on the board of The Motley Fool, I should add. Now, Matt, I want to get your take on what's happening with Whole Foods because um, in the earnings call, John Mackey said they are refining their growth strategy. So, what's going on here? Hallelujah. <laughs> so, un- underneath that refining their growth strategy, I think, and we were talking about before, is it's, it's a, it, they're pivoting back. They're pivoting back to their core customer. That's what was quoted in the press release. But to me, that means that the whole the whole drive by John Mackey and former co-CEO Walter Robb over the past few years to to expand Whole Foods and and reach out to those value conscious customers. You know, it just didn't work. It just wasn't the right position for Whole Foods. I mean, think about it. Starbucks doesn't worry about the the coffee buyer who goes to McDonald's and Dunkin' Donuts and wants to pay 99 cents for coffee. That's not their customer. And I think Whole Foods try I think Whole Foods maybe got obsessed with that whole whole paycheck moniker that the company got yeah. for so many years. And they said, "You know what? We're going to go after that customer who's clipping coupons and going to Walmart and Safeway because they should come to Whole Foods." Well, no, they don't want to come to Whole Foods first of all, and that's not really your customer. And I, I think if they can pivot back to 
the, the customer that's willing to spend a premium for premium groceries, premium food, premium experience, I think that's the right move. Now, the question, though, is you're not going to grow and become as big as, as you are with that kind of approach. And that's why they're not, they've sort of abandoned the 1,200-store market opportunity that they've talked about for many years. Um, we might be looking at a company that not, doesn't have 1,200 stores in the future, but probably has 600, 700, maybe 800 stores. But each of those stores is probably going to be well-positioned, highly profitable, generating a lot of cash. Um, the question is, what kind of premium is Whole Foods going to get in the market now with, with a lower growth trajectory, but higher profits? That's, that's kind of the question outstanding right now. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think um, you know Tim Hanson and I were talking about this yesterday afternoon, sort of thinking how is this going to shake out for Whole Foods this afternoon and going forward. Um, and and we both were thinking that. I mean, we've all been thinking. I think really that twelve hundred store uh, market opportunity was just really not just too optimistic because they, that was exclusive of three sixty five stores too. And so, I mean, I think. The glass half empty guy can go through this call and say, "Man, this all looks really bad." Like comps are down, guidance for 2017 is down. They actually close stores. They're putting this 365 plan on on hold, and yeah, they're going back to their core customer, which means they're not trying to pursue this bigger market opportunity. But I actually I agree with Maddie in the sense that they're going back to really what butters their bread in the first place, right? Focus. They're going back to what really got them to this point. And so they can still be a good business and focus on doing what they do really well. I mean, they were the ones that really kind of defined this market. Now, it's far more competitive now than ever before. And I don't think the masses are going to go out there and pay up for a Whole Foods experience like uh, they, they maybe did early on um, in, in the development of the space. But I do think there are Whole Foods loyalists. I think it is a good store. I think they sell good products. And I think there are people out there that really care. About that organics and natural, uh, you know, philosophy and, and the way and what Whole Foods stands for. I, I think that now, though, I think the I don't see the market ever going back to giving it a premium. And, and I think because the premium that it was once given was based on the assumption that they were going to be able to basically take that customer, that whole paycheck style customer, and grow that customer base. Yeah. And what we found was they had to continually, every quarter, you heard that phrase, investment in pricing. And that was just code for their cutting prices to stay up with their competitors. Right. It was that. And I think what they realized was all, all a lot of locations that they thought could be really profitable for Whole Foods just haven't worked out because the customer base for Whole Foods isn't there. Yeah. Uh, and so we were, you know, early on as investors, we made the fallacy of we looked at um, the future store count and said, "Wow, if we can, pl- if Whole Foods can earn the same unit economics um, they are today, and and have it over 1,200 stores, this is a massively huge profitable company in the future." But I guess that that is now we have to sort of recal- um, you know, recalculate that that uh, trajectory. Yeah, and time. I think also what we saw here on this call and in this release, I think this really uh, sort of implicitly clarified. The move from the co-CEO structure back to just Mackie as the sole CEO. I mean, that really tells the story right there. They're going back to what John Mackey knows got this business to the forefront of the space in the first place. He wants to go back and focus on his core customer. I think that's actually a good strategy. So perhaps there was sort of a butting of heads there between Rob and Mackey at some point when it came to sort of the growth and how they wanted to pursue things. I, I like honestly this this focus on the core customer. Again, it limits the growth story, but 
they can certainly do a very good job with it, and it it can still be a very good business that, in all honesty, can still reward shareholders from today's price. I mean, I I, don't, I wouldn't look at this release and say, oh, this story's over. You got to sell your stock. This is still a good business. It's just a, a bit of a different growth profile now. And guys, let's talk Proto Labs, which reported better than expected earnings, but revenues were down. Matt, Proto Labs is a rapid prototyping company. I'm going to need some help with that. <laughs> Sexy. Because my initial definition was that it produces parts for product designers and short-run manufacturing. Or so, you, you what's go going with, on here? You go with the company's definition, which is a leading online technology-enabled quick-turn on-demand manufacturer. There you go. How do you like that? I'm sorry. I dozed off there <laughs> okay. for a minute. <laughs> so, what do you make of earnings? Well, earnings were better than expected, but you have to, if you go back just a few quarters, uh, this was a company that was growing revenue 20% year over year, and now revenue was actually down uh, in the most recent quarter. Uh, beginning about six months ago, you, could, you started to see evidence, and, and management started calling out the industrial slowdown, uh, you know, slower economic activity in the U.S. Uh, and elsewhere, and that's really impacting demand for their services. So while uh, they do a lot of things, but they had decent growth in their machining and 3D printing business. Um, but the the injection molding business, which is, accounts for most of the revenue, um, was a lot slower. Uh, it's been a lot slower the last six months, and it was definitely a lot slower in the last quarter. Positive takeaways here is that the unique product developer count, which is the company's term for customers, uh, grew 13% to 14,000 last quarter. So that hits a new high. Um, the problem is those customers just aren't spending as much as they used to on ProLab services. Now, the company's hired a new head of sales, um, generating lots of profits. Uh, they've always been profitable. They generated about $19 million in cash from operations last quarter. They have about $200 million uh, on the balance sheet, which is, is very impressive for the, the size of the company. And they announced a $50 million share buyback. So, clearly, they see the business getting better. They see the stock price as an opportunity. Uh, and um, you know, I think if they, can, if they can get back to growth, um, in the, maybe in the teens or even in the 20% range, which management thinks they can get to, this is a very compelling company at a good price. I think they have a very unique position in the market. Uh, it's just been a tough, a really tough year for them. Um, but I have to say, if there is sort of this little bit of a manufacturing renaissance here in the U.S., and you know <laughs> whether the Trump administration can catalyze that or not, I don't know. But there's going to be a lot more domestic spending. There's probably going to be some war- um, corporate tax reforms that come through, and a small cap domestic company like Proto Labs, mostly domestic company like Proto Labs, with a really gr- strong balance sheet and a, and Kind of a good position in manufacturing can probably do really well. So I'm not surprised that the stock is up a little bit today after earnings. And if I'm an investor looking at this, is there going to be a lot of volatility? Do I have to kind of stomach myself yeah, for this, some? Yeah, it's a small calf, previously fast growing company that's now challenged. And you see, and the stock has actually come down about 40% over the last year and a half. So, you know, this is one where you, you know, again, you have to believe in the story and, and think that. Uh, um, at this point, it's a little bit of a turnaround, but you know, with all small caps in the technology space, you gotta you gotta brace for volatility. And guys, before we get to our final story, I want to say thanks to Audible for supporting our podcast. Audible has an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original shows, news, comedy, and more. Audiobooks are great to listen to when you're driving. I listened to one this week um, when you're stuck in traffic, doing stuff around the house, running errands, or working out. And for our market foolery listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial. If you want to listen to it, Audible has it. Just go to audible.com slash fool and browse their unmatched selection of audio content, download a title free, and start listening. It's that easy. And guys, it is that easy. This week, I've been listening to a great book on my way to work, How to Raise an Adult. Break free of, (laughs) listen to the rest of this, break free of the overparenting trap 
and prepare your kid for success. And it's brilliant. My wife was reading the book, and I was annoying her by constantly asking for the takeaways, you know, so I didn't have to read <laughs> it. Right? You got the close notes version. Exactly. Of it. The strong statement. And here's the great thing: the book it, it, it is a wonderful, wonderful book. It's written by a woman who was the freshman dean dean at Stanford for many years, and she noticed that increasingly freshmen didn't have they weren't independent. Their parents had become more and more involved in their lives. These freshmen didn't really know how to do anything or they didn't know how to do a lot of things that they should do. So the book is all about how you equip your your kids to become young adults who can be independent. And it's an indictment of helicopter parents. Are you a helicopter parent, Jason? Because I, I, I definitely would, am. I would say no. And I think the reason why I was because my mom and dad more or less raised me to kind of be independent, kind of get stuff done on my own. But I, I would say I think it is an extremely that is the toughest thing about being a parent. It, it's oh, it's easy to say, man, you got to let your kid go out there and fail and just let it's them so it out. It's so tough. It's not easy to do though. It's so it tough. is not easy. To I do. would like bubble wrap my kids <laughs> if I could, you know. But so, um, I'm guessing you, you don't. You didn't prescribe to the Tiger Mom. Did your, did your wife read the Tiger Mom philosophy? No, no. And, and and you try not to be the helicopter parents, but you end up kind of finding yourself becoming that yeah, a little. Yeah, it's, yeah, no. Uh, but we're we're not we're not Tiger parents. Um, but but it's a really great book. And what I'm doing now is I'm listening to it on the way to work, so my commute's more productive. Um, I'm hopefully becoming a better parent. Hopefully. My kids are becoming more independent, and maybe my wife is getting annoyed a little less because I'm not <laughs> asking her. So it's a win, 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 win. Um, you can get a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial at audible.com slash fool. That's audible.com slash fool. And for our final story, guys, let's talk Markel. It's a company that we've talked a lot about over the years at The Motley Fool. It's a specialty insurance company. We'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. But Markel reporting better-than-expected earnings and revenues. Jason, this is a company that insures things like camps, weddings, and I even found on their website they insure baby showers. Yeah, and I'll give so, you one more. I was yep. talking to my, I was visiting my mom and dad this weekend, and my dad owns shares of Markel, one of his favorite holdings. He loves it. We've been just participating on a, on a big fun ride up. Rodeos. They insure rodeos. That's wow. the example uh, I always wow. use. When people say, what is Markel doing? I'm like, specialty insurance. They're like, what? And you know, I'm like, oh my gosh. Well, you know, specialty insurance, things that other people can't insure. And the thing is that, this is the kind of business that the more you do it, the better you get at it because you get more data. You know how to, you know, it's just like anything else. The more, the more you learn about something, the better you get at it. And in in specialty insurance, that requires a lot of extra work, and it requires, I think, a good sort of history in the space to understand the best ways to go about writing that business. And so, Markel, they have sort of a good one-two punch, and they're pursuing a unique market. They've been doing it for a while, and then, you know, generally speaking, they just have a really good management team that doesn't try to just grab business at any cost. A lot of insurance companies will go out there and just chase policies and they'll write bad business. Markel tends to not do that. Um, and then it doesn't hurt either that former CIO and now co-CEO, Tom Gaynor, who's obviously a good friend of ours here, yep. spoken with him a lot, tremendous investor, great track record. Gets compared to Buffett sometimes. All, and I think rightly so. Uh, yep. All-around nice guy. They have a Markel brunch every year at the Berkshire Hathaway meeting. Um, he, I, I think, he continues to do a very good job as the co-CEO, really focusing on that CIO role because that's what he still focuses on primarily because he's really good at it. Um, and I think that's probably the one sort of risk too that we always kind of thought about in in the the businesses. The co-CEO role it can sound good at the beginning, but it seems like as time goes on, history is just riddled with more examples of of 
where it just doesn't really work out in the end. But when you look at their most recent earnings, what do you what do you see there? Well, I mean, I, th- I think we see a lot of just sort of the same old thing. I mean, Markel is not a business that changes a lot quarter in and quarter out. They focus on writing good business. They focus on managing a good investment portfolio, and they focus on that little Markel venture side of, of the business, which is kind of like the Berkshire Hathaway buying whole businesses, becoming a whole owner of, of businesses that they can tuck in their portfolio. Yeah, Jason nailed all the, the kind of three primary parts of the business. So, and to the point about you know being a kind of a you know sleepy insurance company to a certain extent. I mean, gross premiums uh, were up just slightly, but what we love about Markel is that if you look at the combined ratio uh, over the past year, ninety two percent. Basically, if that number is under 100%, the company is profitable in its insurance business. And Markel is consistently below 100% with its combined ratio. The combined ratio was up slightly because of uh, Canadian wildfires, which I didn't know about, but uh, also Hurricane Matthew, which we all know about, uh, added a few percentage points to their insurance uh, costs uh, during, the, during the year. Um, net investment income was up 10%. Haven't had a chance to go through the call to see how that breaks down in terms of bonds or fixed income and, and equities, but usually very solid in that in that respect. Uh, but yeah, to the Markle Ventures, uh, 1.2 billion in revenue yeah. this past year, up 20%. Uh, EBITDA there was 165 million. So again, granted, to, overall Markel, that's a still a very small part of the business, uh, but it's a growing part of this business, and and we know what Warren Buffett was able to do. In private equity, beyond the core insurance business of Berkshire Hathaway, Markel is pursuing that exact same uh, thing. And so now, for the year, you had book value per share up eight percent. Stock is right now about one point five times book, which yeah. I think we'd call say fairly fairly valued. Yeah. Uh, this is a stock, you know, as, as an investor, that's probably going to track book growth in book value per share over time. Uh, over the last five years, that's up eleven percent per year. So, and that's roughly what Markel is up uh, on a share basis uh, as well over the last five years. So, continue to growing that book value per share, which we expect, and investors should do well. And I'd say the other thing: a few years back, they made a big acquisition of Altera. At the time, a lot of people thought, "Man, that is a big check they're going to cut yeah. for that insurance company. Why are they doing it?" And you know, we we love digging into this business for a number of different reasons. So I think a number of us dug into that acquisition, and it made a lot of sense from the perspective in that they bought a huge fixed income portfolio from Altera. That's one of the things they got from that business. Now Altera was a more conservative investor. You know, insurance companies have to have a lot of their investment. A lot of that float needs to be invested in bonds. It's just regulated by uh, states uh, as such. But what they don't have to have invested in that fixed income, they can at their own choosing invest in things like stocks. Uh, so what Markel did was in buying Altera, they not only bought a lot of that additional market share, but they bought a tremendous fixed income portfolio that then gave Tom Gaynor the access to more capital to continue to invest. In hindsight, it's worked out wonderfully. And if you're a rodeo clown, <laughs> you're this is your ticket. You're insured. You're, good You're covered. Do go. you think they insure the clown, or is it it's the entire rodeo? Because I'm guessing that's that's bad business. If I'm a rodeo clown and I need insurance, I, I think mean, that's probably, high risk. Yeah, if you're a rodeo clown, you're probably going to Aflac first because chances of right? I, mean, I mean, think gonna, chances of missing a day yeah. or two at work are pretty high. It's like, what do you do? I'm a clown. What what type of clown? You know, you don't need to know that. Just just, just, just a clown. Just clown. <laughs> do you do you work with other people? Uh, animals, clowny people. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Jason, Matt, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Thank Matt. You. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Matt Greer. Thanks for listening, and we will see you on Monday.